Hi everybody, Mark here. Before today's episode I'd just like to make a quick apology. I recently had to change laptops because my old one gave up the ghost. I tested out the new one by recording myself and listening to it back and it sounded okay. And when I was recording other people it seemed to be capturing it fine too. But when I listened to it back the sound quality, well it wasn't great. I didn't want to lose the great content that we've recorded this week so I've been doing everything I can to try and make it as listenable as possible. Hopefully you can bear with it and even enjoy what we're talking about and I'll make sure that it's better for next time. Okay, with that said, now let's get on with the show. Is this a podcast? Is this just fantasy? Yes, it's a podcast. It's Escape from Reality. Hello and welcome to episode 3 of Escape from Reality, a podcast all about escape games and escaping. My name's Mark, I'm an escape game enthusiast and blogger from the northwest of England. As always tonight, I'm joined by Ken. Hello Ken. Hi Mark. And tonight as well, uh, joined by Chris Dixon. Hi Chris. Hello there, I'm Chris Dixon and I run X Exit Games, a website about exit games and puzzle hunts and puzzle competitions and related matters of interest. Chris is joining us tonight to talk about the Great Escape UK Unconference, which took place in London on the 25th of April, so about three weeks ago now. But before we dive into that, uh, a new addition for the podcast is we're going to have a very brief news section. So, first up, if you subscribe to the podcast through an app or, for any other reason, haven't read the blog post that goes along with it, you may have missed the shout-out to a new Escape-based podcast that has launched, the Room Escape Divas from Canada. It's really entertaining, it's good to get another perspective on things, so if one podcast isn't enough for you, please Google that, or you can find them on Facebook and Twitter as well. Back in episode one, Ken gave us a recommendation, or a brief mention at least, to a room called Enter the Oubliette. Since Ken had mentioned it, I've had the chance to go and play that room, and I can heartily recommend it. But unfortunately, due to reasons outside their control, it is going to have to close on the 18th of June, giving you exactly one month from now in order to experience it in its current form. So I heartily recommend you go and do that. Uh, Back in the world of social media, we've set up a new Facebook group this week called UK Escape Room Enthusiasts. So any of you out there who just like playing games rather than necessarily owning a game or a company with a stakehold in in the industry, please join that to make sure you're kept up to date with latest news and information and also engaging in lots of entertaining discussions. This week we've been talking about who's played the most games, who's travelled the furthest to play and what type of themes we like and don't like playing. And also in that Facebook group you'll see a great new post from Ken which details a lot of the escape room's comings and goings over the last month or so. Uh, which is vital to, for us who want to keep on top of such things. I, I found out that there's a new game just around the corner from me that I hadn't heard of, so I'll be looking to play that shortly. So I advise you all to go and have a quick look at that. Okay, 
back to into the uh, previously advertised schedule and the re-review of the conference itself. When the crowd say ball, selector. Okay, Chris, so as the uh, leader of the on-conference, so to speak, maybe you'd like to start us off with the discussion? On-conferences don't have leaders, Mark. That's the whole point about it. On-conferences are a format for a big group discussion that had been going on for at least a, a dozen years or so. And the concept of an on-conference is that it's deliberately, relatively unplanned and quite ad hoc on the day. There are no leaders, there are only participants. It does take someone to normally be a facilitator or, or a team of people to split the jobs between them, but it is deliberately democratic, it is deliberately egalitarian, it's deliberately participatory. The first conference of which I'm aware in this field of ours was held by the almighty Professor Scott Nicholson and his friends in Toronto uh, late last year. And since then, there have been two in the UK. There was a first one in Leeds in January, and then there was the most recent one in London, indeed, on the 25th of April. Uh, the plans for the conference in London were not quite how the conference turned out. There were some late changes that had to be made, but I think it ended up turning out reasonably well all the same. There were, I believe, 47 people who turned up at one point or another during the day, and at least 17 different sites were represented, as well as people who were coming without representing an exit gate. Perhaps they were representing an associated business, perhaps they were looking to get into the industry, perhaps they just came as a participant. The day began with icebreaker activity, which we'll probably go on to talk about later. After that, there was a panel in which people who had attended the recent Up the Game conference in Amsterdam in the Netherlands talked about their experiences there and shared their wisdom. The main body of the unconference was split up into four sessions, each of which had four parallel tracks. The, one of the distinguishing features of an unconference is that the attendees on the day determine what topics they want to discuss, and then people will break into four parallel streams each of these four sessions talk about whatever it is they wanted to. The first time at an unconference can be a bit confusing, but if you've been to the one in Leeds, then you had a much better idea to, as to what to expect from the one in London. And the more people who get to go to these unconferences, the easier it will be at unconferences going forward in the future. The topics that were discussed, there are 16 different sessions, and there's a wide range of things. I'm just going to pick out a, a few of them. Some of them were a bit more serious than others. A very popular session at the start of the day was cross-promotion and collaboration. Another one which might get talked about more is narrative and world building. Other topics were staff planning, recruitment, business topics like corporate sales, more artistic topics like making escape games a show, technological discussions as well, marketing discussions. And there were entirely random discussions which started off being about moving games, and bizarrely they turn into animal facts, and animal facts begat fruit facts. But if that's what people want to talk about, it's totally fine. That's a great example of, of what you say, people talk about what they want to talk about. I remember before I went to the first conference in Leeds, thinking, well, I really want to go and talk about escapey type stuff, but I've really no idea 
what they're going to talk about. And if, if everyone there is an owner and they want to talk about social media marketing or they want to talk about where to get the best maglocks from, I'm not sure that's something I can contribute to. But the fact that the range of topics covered was so diverse and if, the, and if you wanted to talk about something, you could suggest that and then other people would say, oh, that's a good idea, meant it was a, a really welcoming place as well as a varied discussion. Yeah, I really liked that the, uh, the talks were very dynamic, so people were moving between the original subjects and onto a new one. And one of the ones I was involved in was about uh, escape rooms for children. And that one just diverted straight off to an entirely different subject by the end. The downside is, with so many different conversations, it's difficult for people to get a hang of what took place there on the day. And even if you're lucky enough to be able to get to four conversations, that means there are 12 that you missed out on. One of the things we are seeking to do is to collect notes from people who were taking them in the various conversations, so people who could only attend four sessions could get at least some idea of what the rest were about. Now, that didn't stop one or two people trying to multitask from session to session to session, and indeed, I actually only really got to visit one session all day because I was involved on the administration side of things. I'm looking forward to learning a lot more about what I missed out on, because I'm sure I only got to see 20% of the conference at most. Yeah, and we are looking to address that by a Google document that we're going to share out to the community as soon as we've just filled in a few more of the blanks that we're aware of, but then give people a chance to add in their own comments or own things that they've remembered or even thought of since then that will allow it to be a, a living document and hopefully provide information to those who were there and those who weren't who were interested in it. I'm guessing by the time we actually get this podcast out that the Google Doc will have been shared and presumably linked off your website maybe? If it takes me as long to edit it as it normally does, we may have got the next unconference by then. But uh, <laughs> let's hope we can do it a little bit quicker than usual. At the end of the unconference, we invited people to give uh, their feedback and we were very grateful that we received 26 or 27 completed feedback forms from the day. Uh, it was very kind, much of it was, was very flattering. It was clear that the venue had some small problems, most notably that none of the staff were able to turn down the volume of background music. And Jackie from Exit Game Scotland had a genius masterstroke of hanging jackets over all the loudspeakers. And that went quite a long way Towards drawing the background noise out, but it was still it was still imperfect. I can't help but feel that uh, the reason that she had that idea was probably because she's been in escape rooms with exactly the same problem where they can't put background music down. I'm sure that's how she solved it in the past. That's a lovely thought. But what if the background music contains vital clues? Oh, what was the risk? What was the risk? Let's not get into hanging your coats in escape games, as I still have a a major blemish on my record for hanging my coat on a set of keys. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've had a bad experience with the coat as well. You've got to be very careful with coats and escape rooms. They're dangerous things. <laughs> Official coat hooks and speakers only, then, it seems. The feedback was generally very, very kind. People did seem to enjoy the discussions and the ability to make new contacts and engage in networking. And they also just enjoyed being able to talk at depth with people who properly got it in a way that does not happen face-to-face -face very frequently. Discussions online in Facebook groups are tremendous. In some ways, they do more specific jobs better than face-to-face -face discussions. But sometimes, you 
want to make face-to-face -face discussions with people in person, particularly those who come a long way. We have people who come from as far as Edinburgh, from as far as Aberdeen and Inverness, and even from uh, outside the UK. And we're very, very grateful to them all. There was some funny feedback as well. Feedback forms had a section for what went well, a section for what could be improved, and a section for any other comments. And I don't quite understand the whole story behind this, though we've got a guess. Under any of the comments, someone commented, Cats are dicks! <laughs> well, I suppose that is valid feedback if that's what they feel. I think they may have slightly misinterpreted any other comments, though. Yeah, it's it's such a rarity when you start talking to someone about these type of things and their interest goes beyond 10 seconds. I think the last conversation I tried to have with a non-enthusiast got as far as, oh, so it's like the Crystal Maze then? Yeah, it is. Do you want to talk about the Crystal Maze? No. Um, <laughs> so, like-minded people, great conversation. Okay then, well thanks for all that Chris, that was a great description of what went on. Now as we move beyond the padlock, we'll talk about a few of the conversations that we had on the day and open that up for discussion both here and then hopefully with you guys later on. Watch closely, because remember, the clues are there as we go. Beyond the padlock. technology or whether actually something lo-fi is better 
And the particular argument was that if you create a room today that's low tech, that has sort of more traditional type puzzles and padlocks and things, and you create another room which has makes a lot of use of high tech, then in two years' time, that high tech room is going to be massively out of date, whereas the low tech room isn't. When we were having a discussion, I was very much of the opinion that low tech rooms haven't yet reached their, their pinnacle. It's not like they have stopped evolving. And just because they've got they've got technologies that already exist doesn't mean that we've reached the end of that evolution. And I'm very much of the opinion that there's still a lot to evolve there in terms of the story side of things, in terms of how you can fit those puzzles together. And I'm really interested to see when I look back in two or three years' time whether that will be the case or whether actually you know, some of these will still exist. And I wonder what you guys think. I think it's a theme that came out throughout the day with people very interested in how they can introduce technology into the rooms or whether they should or how much that's going to cost them and that type of thing. I think there's a space for both low-tech and high-tech rooms in the future. Yes, there is an argument that technology will only be cool while it's new and then when something else comes out it won't be cool anymore. But if it's done in the right way, so that that technology feels like enabling the story to be told, I still think that will be cool and enjoyable for you to be in that room two, three, five years later. However, if you're just saying, come into my room and play with this gizmo, and then that is old news, then yes, it will lose some of its shine. But I would say in that case, I don't want to just go into an escape room to play with a gizmo, because I'm there for a real-world tactile experience, not to essentially play a computer game that I could do from home. Yeah, I guess to take another form of entertainment, is Star Wars still cool? What was it, 1977 it was released? Can you still watch that, even though technology has evolved massively? Is it still a good film? And I think the answer is very clearly yes, it's still a good film. Certainly a good film will possibly push the definition of cool. <laughs> well, you know, in some circles, maybe... <laughs> I guess there's a, probably a big overlap between people who like escape games and, pe- uh, and people who like Star Wars, but that's actually something we could look at on one of the Facebook groups, maybe. Play to your audience, play to your audience. Yeah. What was an official Star Wars-derived escape group? I don't know, but I don't know whether it's official. I very much doubt it is. I believe there's one themed around the Death Star opening in Romania. Wow. The first thing that came to mind was um, from the first film where they're all stuck in that garbage chute with the big snake. That would a natural escaping scenario, at least. Oh, where, it, where the room's actually shrinking. Oh, even better, yeah. That's a, it's, it's themed and it's different. It'd be too easy to crack the locks. You just know they're all going to be the C-3PO or R2-D2. <laughs> and I wonder how long it will be until someone uses the brute force. Oh dear. Right, uh, moving on. <laughs> Keep that in, that's fantastic. Taking that further, Mark, I agree with you, and the story and the theme of the room will dictate to what extent technology is appropriate. If you are deliberately in a older setting, then it makes sense for the room to be relatively low-tech. And there are still plenty of interesting places to have stories which can be set in the past to various extents. And sometimes people will go out of the way to make sure that the technology is appropriate to the age in which the story is set. 
on the other hand, it would be cool to play a futuristic story as well. Yep. I think as long as you're careful to segregate the technology into where it's appropriate, then I think it works really well. I was reading uh, the RuneScape Artist's review of the room today, and he was talking about how you had to interact with the touchscreen in a, in a room, I think, that was set somewhere in the 1800s. And he made the point, which I very much agree with, I can live with there being a, a screen that kind of hints come over and time is shown on, and then that kind of doesn't break the illusion for me because I know it's kind of part of the game. But as soon as you have to interact with it, to me, you've lost me. I I'm suddenly, I've, I've left the story and I'm back in the real world. Well, actually, that point takes me on very nicely to the next conversation I was going to talk about, which was all about uh, developing narrative and immersion and building a world with, in which your room exists. So the conversation actually started by an owner posing me the question, as you've played so many games, is it difficult to impress you now? And I said, I don't think so. I still think I would evaluate a good game as a good game just because I've played other good games. But it's in, I really look for certain aspects of a game, particularly on the immersion and the story side, for me to enjoy it because that's what I like to get out of games and it's probably a necessity for me to rate a game highly. I'd, um, I'd, I'd say actually it's easier to impress me now than it used to be um, because I'm so impressed when somebody does something really well. At the beginning, if somebody did something really well, I just took it for granted. So, well, of course your locks are all right and it's set properly and, and the room flowed and you congratulated me on the way out. But I've now seen it done badly as well. And once you've seen it done badly, you stop taking the good for, for granted. So I'd say it's easier to impress me now than it was when I'd done maybe five or so rooms. The next question then was, are there certain themes that you don't like? And my response was, there's no such thing as a bad theme there's only a lazy implementation of that theme. So if you're going to put the, an appropriate amount of story and innovation and thought into that room, the theme is almost irrelevant. Where we say that certain themes are cliche is where there's no thought added into it. So if you look at some of the analysis we've done recently, there's lots and lots of offices so unless you have a story that explains to me why I'm in that office and what I'm hoping to find, it's just another office. Same in a science lab, same in a, even in a time travel, as sophisticated as that can be. If it's just the same as everybody else's take on it, then it does become boring. But if you put that thought in, it can be original and different and enjoyable. Which prompted the next question of then... Does it mean you have to invest a lot of money and it has to be a particularly flashy room? My answer to that was no, but you have to be realistic. If you are operating on a limited budget, design a room that you can afford to make look like that on a budget. So maybe it is more like an office or more like a lab, because I'm not going to believe I'm on a spaceship or in a submarine if I'm dealing with white office walls. Yeah, I totally agree. But make absolutely sure if you do that that you've got a clear story. I think that that's what you were saying earlier. You know, as long as you've got the story right, as long as you, the set matches the theme of the story, then I think you can get away with it. Yeah, and once you've got that story then, uh, stick with it. So I was talking to the guys from Time Run, and you guys will know from having played that, that your immersion starts there as soon as you enter the building. In fact, they'll leave you in the street until the ready to welcome you and then when that big door opens the story in the immersion starts from there and you are dragged into that 
that story and that uh, world almost whether you want to be or not. And one of the things they were saying that is sometimes you come across groups that are not particularly excited or interested in it. They've been dragged along by the partner or by the work or whatever it might be. And they start not engaging in the story. But one of the hints they gave is if they try and take you out of the world, just drag them back into it. So if they ask an out-of-world question, give them an in-world answer, whilst still being polite, of course, but bringing them back into that world. Now, I'm not sure that would work for everybody and for every game, but that idea of, we're in a story world now, please stay with me, sounds like a good idea to me to really get people in the right frame of mind for what they're about to encounter. Yeah, I'd agree entirely. I think if you're going to go for it, go for it. I mean, that's fundamentally it. If you think it's worth having a story, if you think it's worth putting effort into that story, then I think you have to try and stick with it and try and pull your audience along with you. And I've, I've been to a couple of escape rooms that, that they're not quite on the time run level in terms of having uh, an actor do that part, but they just have somebody who is kind of in character a little, uh, and they will very much try and keep you along. And if you try and go off the beaten path a little, they'll just pull you back into it. One of the funny things about Time Run, and this is not a spoiler, is that they will immerse you in a time-related theme even before you get inside the building. I know this because I press the button to say, hello, I'm here for the 20 past 3 game, or whatever it was, except I said 20 past 4 by mistake. And the person to whom I was speaking very kindly, very politely, very firmly said, 20 past 3, sir. Past 3. Past three. Oh, absolutely. So they've got you in character or in the mood as soon as you walk through the door. Then the big thing we talked about was delivering a story or explaining an introduction that gets you into that, even more into that mood and gives you an expectation of what you're going to do next. And we've talked about that in a previous episode about how that should start even on the website to describe what you're doing, but then be picked up before you even go into the game. And then we're obviously into the room itself. So the next thing we talked about then is, are there any sort of hints and tips and tricks you can do to take that immersion to the next level? And that's where what you were saying earlier, Ken, about uh, having a touchscreen in an 18th century dungeon or whatever doesn't make sense. Well, we started talking about including all aspects of the experience within your design. I've played a room recently where... It was set in the modern day and there was a computer in the room because it was an office. Yet the timer and the communication system was a separate screen that was up on the wall. And I said afterwards, what a failed opportunity. You've got a screen and a possible communication device right there within the theme. Yet you've built a, a separate one on the wall that slightly breaks the immersion. Not in a big way, but if you thought about it more, you could have built that screen into it there. Now, on the flip side of that, if you were in an 18th century dungeon and screens haven't been invented yet, maybe though we can, you can start to think about the paper notes shoved under the door or even the games master entering the room to communicate with you because it keeps it on theme. I'm not going to say a room isn't good because it doesn't have these things, but if you're looking to how you can get things more and more towards a completely immersed world, these are the little sort of dotting the I's and crossing the T's that can make the difference between a very good room and an excellent room. Yeah, I'd agree, Mark. That's right at the edge of what people do in terms of making their immersion absolutely perfect. And, but there are very, very few rooms that manage to do it. I've been in maybe 
really interesting idea this is the first time hearing of it yet i was thinking whilst doing something else earlier on about the computer game that i think you're both familiar with keep talking and nobody explodes where at times in that you have to go and do something not just undo the bomb but also fix one of the needy modules i think they're called to keep it going or to stop it being annoying or what have you at the same time as you're doing anything else i was thinking whether that idea could work in escape games almost like someone has to keep a lookout to make sure the guards are not coming in a in a heist theme or something like that and it sounds like this is a very similar implementation already and can i just say keep talking and nobody explodes is a fantastic game if you are in an escape room and you've got a lobby and your lobby's kind of dull, frankly. Get a cheap laptop and stick a copy of Keep Talking and Nobody Explodes in there. People will just have so much fun and it will get them in the whole communicating, problem-solving sort of mood. That will get people buzzing and ready to play your game. That was a digression. When people talk about playing in games with live actors, they will often say that they want to interact with actors and get into the story. However, practice, they can often find dealing with actors to be a bit uncomfortable. They prefer to interact with friends and have a good time with their friends, rather than getting involved in the story. Now, some people love the story as escape rooms, other people are less excited about it. Sometimes it seems to be effective if the people telling the story almost want to instill just a little bit of discomfort in the players in-game reasons. When you force a reaction and force 
force someone from within the team to step forward. He instantly created a leader from among the team. And that is going to be something which will be memorable for whoever the leader is and also for the rest of the team. It's interesting you should say that because I was having a discussion with somebody, uh, it was after the, on the conference, um, talking about how you have to somehow share out any experience you should have in escape rooms or in fact in immersive theatre as well. And there's a real danger if you allow one person to either be victimised that you then alienate the rest of the team, particularly if that team isn't actually a friend. Um, so if you've got a ticketed experience where some of those people are from separate groups, then they can feel quite aggrieved that they didn't get to have that experience. And so you, you do have to be a little bit careful with the, the actors that they know how to, to balance that. On the flip side, some people don't want to have that experience. Some people are shy, some people are nervous about getting involved or uncomfortable, as you said. And, and so the actors have to be really good at judging which ones are the ones to go to and which ones want to be drawn in or out. It's crucial that the interactions between all the players and the actors actually make sense in the context of the story that you're trying to tell. Yep, yep, I definitely agree with that. Measuring experiences to customers' desires and expectations that cropped up in the conversation I had entitled How to Make Losing Fun. Although I'm not sure that's really what we covered in the end, it was more along the lines of should people be losing at all and what other ways of approaching escape games can there be and i guess this is kind of cut similar to what we were talking about in the last episode on the non-binary win conditions but we talked about how the norm in escape games at the moment or certainly escape games in this country seems to be that there should be a failure point somewhere between 20 and 50 percent that way if you get out of the room, you feel like you've achieved something. And if you don't get out of the room, you don't feel too bad because you're not the only people who don't get out. The counter-argument is that 95% of people should get out of rooms because there's always going to be some people who don't want to go out for some reason. But if 95% are going to get out, you're going to have to have a room that in some way adapts to those that are playing it. So... Are there things that the room that you can do as a host or that the room can do itself in order to make it a challenge for an experienced player who has played a lot of games and wants to get into the fine details and solve a lot of puzzles, but also do it for the Stagger Hen Party who are only paying half attention to it, or maybe people who are only playing their first games? So a couple of ideas got put forward. Perhaps the most obvious being that you can have a hard version and an easy version of a room that you decide either when you're booking or when you arrive at the facility. And then people can maybe take out a particular puzzle, if that's possible, or remove some red herrings or make some hidden objects more visible or whatever it might be. And then it's still the same room, there's still larger, the same content in the but people uh, are more likely to pass it or will have to put more effort in to pass it, depending on what it is they've actually requested. It's interesting. Uh, when you were saying that, I was thinking, going back to the discussion about story being important, if you have the same room, but with some of the puzzles taken out, you're effectively telling the same story. So it's still the same room if story is what you think is important. If you think puzzles are important, then you've changed the room and potentially changed it quite significantly if you're taking some of the harder puzzles. So it, I think it probably ends up being a bit of a, um, a dichotomy in terms of whether people 
are into the, the story or the puzzles in terms of whether they, they approve that or not. And for me, taking puzzles out seems like quite a reasonable option um, to make a game appeal to lots of different people. But I could well imagine there are a lot of people who just think, no, I'm not playing the same game. That's not reasonable. Yeah, and it puts the emphasis on the players to decide in advance which one they want to do. Now, the more subtle approach is what's called simplifications and complications. And here, you are just playing the game. There's no option to book easy or hard or request it. But these are events or happenings that can occur during the game that are controlled by the game's host based on how you're progressing in the room or how much fun you seem to be having. So perhaps an event happens within the story of the game that makes your clock reduce in time, or the lighting go down, or a loud noise to be played as a distraction. And then you've got, it will make it more difficult for you, hopefully not to the point of being unpleasant, but that it adds something else into the game. Or maybe they can send you on a side quest that isn't, necessary for you to get out of the exit door but that you will learn something else in in the story within the room for the experienced players whereas for those inexperienced players perhaps when a number is revealed either on a screen or in a box that can take them straight through bypassing a puzzle altogether or making the puzzle simpler in some way so that they can get the next number or the next key or whatever it might be onto a later part of the game because they still want that thrill of opening the door or getting very close to that and at their current progress rate they're not going to get there. Yeah, there's a couple of games that I'm aware of where they um, cut out sections of the game or add in extra bits depending how you look at it depending on the progress. I'm not going to say what they are because obviously that's a spoiler. But what I was curious about was, are you aware of any games in Britain that do the hard and easy modes that allow the players to choose? Because obviously that's not a spoiler. I don't know any that say specifically hard and easy. I've had, I've been questioned when I've entered the facility what my experience level is and kind of what game I'm looking for. And I don't know if that's directly influenced at what's happened other than maybe in some cases you say, I don't want hints, or I do want hints, or I want unlimited, or what have you. But I'd be interested if any owners who might be listening could get in touch with us and tell us that they offer that and how it works for them. Yeah, I've certainly heard of, they give you different levels of, of clues depending on your experience. There are only two games I can think of that have an easy and hard mode. But one of them I wouldn't really count, which is the one in uh, Breakout Liverpool, which is Wanted, where they have the Cowboys and Indians option. Because you can actually play both those games if you want. It's not like there's an easy and hard mode in the same game. It's effectively two separate games within the same room. The one which definitely does do an easy and hard mode, which you can't play again once you've played once, is Secret Studio Escape in Time in London, um, which uh, when I played it didn't have that option. They just played the game and it was whatever level it was, but they've since explicitly something you can choose to have it on, uh, on a different difficulty level. I guess to an extent you could class Bad Clown, which we discussed in the last episode, that has a scurry and a non-scurry version, but also the non-scurry version is shorter and has fewer puzzles. So it's, I guess, by definition, a little easier. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And it's, I guess it's just a general... I wonder how many escape rooms are in the country that have different versions of the same game and where you can choose what they are. And it doesn't necessarily mean in the sense of you're choosing hard versus easy. It could be 
choosing scary versus not scary, as in the case of Bad Clown, although I appreciate it's also um, choosing difficulty levels. So after we had these conversations about how rooms can be changed and one of the owners asked the question, but how practical this is this and how necessary is it? Are people not going to play a room because they think it's too easy or possibly too hard? And is it worth going to all this type of effort? As an enthusiast player, that's quite difficult for me to answer generically. I can say... From my own perspective, it is super important because if for nothing else, when I pay however much, not an inconsiderable amount of money for an hour's entertainment and I walk out 23 minutes later, it leaves a particularly bad taste in my mouth. Even if I've had a great story for 20 minutes, I'm unlikely to rate that room highly just because I think it's just been too easy for me and I've not got that value for money. So I think it is something we should be looking at as an industry, but I'd open it up to for others' views. Yeah, I think, so you're a very specialist view. Um, we, we as enthusiasts have played a lot of games. I'm a little bit more nuanced. I don't think that it's that important to make it so that um, people who've got a lot of experience get out in kind of 40 or 50 minutes. I love it when they do, don't get me wrong. If a game does that, I will give it praise and I will try and install this virtues to everyone. But I've got to be honest, there are very few of us, there are very few of us who play a lot of games. Um, and so the vast majority of people are on their first ever game, and if you could make it so that for them they're getting out in fifty five to sixty minutes, you've probably hit the jackpot and you don't need to worry about enthusiasts. And it's one of the, the banes of my life when I'm talking to when I'm talking to owners and I say to them, Yeah, this is my opinion, this is what I think, but you probably shouldn't pay too much attention to me. I would extend that further to say that setting people's expectations is key. There is no absolutely hard and fast rule as to what is difficult and what is easy. There is an example of very, very good practice with Lock in Escape, who on their website don't just give an out and out difficulty level, but they split the types of difficulty you might find into an area diagram and suggest that if you particularly want to have this sort of physical game, go for this room. If you want a mathematics heavy room, go for this room. If you want a such heavy room, go for this room. You or I might have particular preferences to what sort of difficulty we want in our room. Ours is not the only valid preference. So, if, particularly if you're in a position where you can offer different sorts of challenge, let people know and help people find the room that's right for them. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, and, and going back to the difficult versus easy, actually, if I go to a room and it says that the room is easy and I play it and I get out in 30 minutes, well, I just accept that I played a room that was easy and they told me that and it's kind of my own fault. Um, so I, I think if you setting expectations, uh, that's what it comes down to. If you set expectations correctly, then, um, yeah, you can make a room that's, that is easy for enthusiasts. And I think they just have to accept that, well, it, that's just the way it is. I agree with that, and I have dodged some rooms that I believe, because of the website or because of other people have told me, have been particularly easy, and I thought, well, I'm not going to enjoy that then. Doesn't mean that somebody else can't enjoy it. But on a broader sense, Errol, one of our friends who on the Room Escape Divas podcast, has a strong belief that escape rooms overall, or particularly the ones in Canada, are getting easier because designers now are catering more and more 
for new players and new players theoretically have a better time with an easier game or at least a more accessible time. My argument to that would be, and maybe for selfish reasons, if you only cater for new players once they've played one or two games, are they going to still want to keep doing that or is that the end of the hobby for them? And at what point do the number of new players coming in lose out to the number of people coming back? And there are lots of different viewpoints on that and we could probably fill in all, a whole episode with thoughts on that. But I don't know at the moment. I'd like to think that there's at least a space for somewhere in the market for tougher rooms that uh, enthusiasts or puzzle-minded people will be drawn towards. Yeah, I definitely think there is. I think um, there are plenty of rooms in uh, places like London which have uh, a concentration, and I think in the northwest as well. I think when you have that concentration, you have a, a company which has several different rooms, that you're in a good position for those some of those rooms to be at the very hard end of the scale. I think they are doing that to some extent. I don't think it's as extreme as I'd like it to be, but it's certainly getting there. Yeah, so that brings us nicely along to the topic I wanted to talk about, which was a discussion we had on escape room games for children. So we were talking about difficulty levels there, and I think that's one of the, the key things we discussed there, was that when you've got children, you have to make sure that the difficulty level is just right for them. So different age groups, the abilities they have differ massively. And it's very hard to, to make a room that will suit, say, a, a seven-year-old or also suit a 14-year-old. They just have very different um, both abilities and tastes in a way which I think is a little less extreme when you get to adulthood. When we were talking about it, we were trying to sort of say, well, what are the things that are common? What are the things that you could, that you would be looking at if you're putting together uh, an escape room aimed at, I guess, children probably below the age of 13 or so. We're looking at, a, I think, when, you're, when a child's above that sort of age, they can engage in normal escape rooms quite happily. So we were talking about the children of uh, maybe my children's age, which is uh, five and seven, um, up to maybe maybe very early teens. And so the, the first thing I, that I suggested in that discussion was more searching. Um, so kids seem to love searching. They seem to be, well, not just love it, they seem to be really good at it. Um, or maybe I'm just really bad. I don't know about uh, about you two. But I'm a phenomenally bad searcher. And kids, well, I took, I took my kids once to an escape room and it was embarrassing. We haven't gone back to another one because I was so embarrassed. Or maybe, maybe it's kind of, it's hard to find ones that are uh, suitable, but it was an embarrassing experience when uh, my seven-year-old turned around to me and said, Daddy, are you meant to do anything with this? And there was a prop in the room which I'd been ignoring steadfastly, and yes, we were meant to do something with that. Also, when she unlocked a box, but I uh, hadn't worked out you could use a key to unlock. So yes, um, children are different. So, yes, the children are different from adults. And you have to remember, not only other things that you have to make maybe a little easier for them, but there are some things they excel at, and if you can get that balance right, then uh, I think you can really appeal to them. Um, so as well as more searching and making the puzzle a easier, one of the things that, that came out was that children are more willing to do things that maybe adults will find unpleasant. So in particular, you could put a uh, box which is full of dirt in the room, and they could delve around inside that, and they'd quite happily do that, or have some gunge or whatever, things that, that adults would just say no to. And kids are quite happy to. So I think there's definitely something along those lines that I'd love to see a room do where it's catering for children by um, by making the experience kind of unpleasant but in a fun way. I guess there might be a bit of extra patience as well at the risk of alienating parents everywhere uh, as I don't have kids but I can 
conceive of a task maybe you get a lot of sticks in a drawer and you need to sort them out in I don't know, numerical order or sort by colours or something like that. And I would encounter a challenge or a task like that and say, well, this is tedious, but one or a group of kids who can sit there and, and work through that together might enjoy a challenge like that, which isn't suitable for a different for an adult base to skate the game. Yeah, it's a good point. I don't, we didn't discuss that kind of thing, but I think someone referred to on a, on a group that I read as process puzzle. So a puzzle which you know how to do, it's just kind of following through the actions and you find that repetitive. It's a great example of what kids excel. They can just totally home in and go, yep, I know what to do, I want to do it. And yeah, to take a, my kids as an example, I had a game which I made for them which involved the code wheel. So just a simple wheel which allows you to convert between one letter and another. And I said to them, you could just make a map that showed you the way of translating between all letters of the alphabet and the values they become. But they insisted on using the code wheel all the way through because they enjoyed the process of just of moving that code wheel back and forth and, and following through those instructions. So I think, yeah, that is a good point that sometimes things which we might think are tedious, it's not just about things which we might think are unpleasant, but actually things that are just boring for us, very exciting for kids. And we had a brief discussion about breakout.edu. Um, so for those of you who haven't heard about it, um, this is uh, something which I think originated in the States. And basically it's a pack of padlocks um, that allow you to put together escape games, predominantly aimed at the education market. And then they've got a website that backs that up, which gives you a whole lot of ideas of specific games you can play. Um, and they're generally aimed towards a specific curricula, but I've used the, the kit which they have for sale, used that to make escape rooms in, in the home. Well, I think that's a, a great example of escape games going into other aspects of life that we at the moment, think of them purely as a uh, leisure or entertainment activity, but using those same traits and tools to tell more than a story, to actually inform people about a educational subject. And I know if you listen to the podcast that I mentioned earlier, and I'll make the link available to you, Professor Nicholson talks about some of the work he's done so far and work doing for the future, and I think that's a really exciting thing that more people in the UK could get involved with. Yeah, I think it's really exciting. So one of the things I do outside of my escape room life is I'm involved in the local school as a governor. And one of the things that's very apparent to me is that the more you can do to engage children and to get them excited about learning, the more they learn. I think that's true of everyone. It's true of children, it's true of adults. But I think this is a really powerful tool to make something uh, educational and fun and so I'd really love to see it and I'm absolutely trying to think of a way of making that fit into to my local schools so that I can try and take escape rooms into the classroom. The final thing I want to talk about from that conversation was that while we were talking about escape rooms for children we kind of diverted towards the end onto an entirely different subject. Having talked about what you can do to make escape rooms appeal to a, a market which they don't currently appeal to we um, digressed onto an entirely different market which was drunk people or rather people who want to get drunk. And so we spent uh, a good 10 minutes discussing how you would put together an escape room that you were drinking throughout the whole experience uh, and not drinking in a kind of easygoing, let's have a beer during the, the hour-long experience, but probably shots from the beginning. And my conclusion from that was that it would be a very, very bad idea. <laughs> what a way to go. Well, it sounds like a lot of fun, though. Uh, yeah, I think maybe if you're an enthusiast, if you're a player, I think it's 
probably a lot of fun. I think if you're an owner or the games master, I'm going to guess that it's not quite as so much fun, especially when it comes to resetting that room. Yeah, maybe if we ever down that route we spoke about about designing rooms and like a game jam type episode, we can start to work out how to do a room for drunk people or a room with drinking puzzles, challenges. Where the get easier throughout the whole game. Yeah, but you, you but you get more drunk. That's actually a oh, there's a PhD waiting to be written though. And that's how you change the difficulty level of the game. You just put <laughs> more shots. You're doing very well in this game. You must down another shot. Yeah. Oh, joke about it. Chess, there is a long story tradition of the pint of point tournament. Two players play chess. Whoever wins drinks a pint of beer. Whoever it's a draw, they drink half a pint of beer each. Then they play other people. So the more you win, the more beer you drink. And then you keep going and you uh, progressively play drunk of chess. Until you get to the hospital. Oh, that's special gambit. <laughs> I'm not thinking of escape route boxing, chess boxing. Into a room, you have to keep on boxing while you're solving puzzles. Sacrifice, but with, with boxing instead of uh, being competitive rooms. Well, now I'm thinking of like a cross between escape room and wipeout. <laughs> and you open a door and a big glove comes through and punches you in the face. And... I find it off when I'm playing escape rooms in any case. If you didn't like the lasers in the escape room you played, Mark, then you're really not going to like wipeout escape room. No. That may be more of a spectator sport than the participants will enjoy it. But... <laughs> I try to help you. <laughs> okay, uh, lots of great conversations there. And as we mentioned earlier, we'll be sharing the notes from the unconference shortly uh, for you to read through and add to in your own time. But for now, we'll move on to lock in or keep out. So, sticking with the unconference theme from throughout the episode, one of the pieces of feedback that we didn't cover earlier was whether the conversations should be moderated or administrated in some way to ensure that they stay on topic or that the people with the loudest voices are not the only ones heard. However, this goes somewhat against the very informal nature and purpose of unconferences. So, what do you guys think? One thought that was suggested is that when a session gets sufficiently large, sort of more than 10 or 12 or 15 participants, it might even be useful to split the session up into two parallel discussions on normally similar, similar topics and have people come back and present their freshest thinking to the other half of the group at the end. Yeah, I thought that seemed like a really good idea. Would have worked really well in the conference. Um, definitely there were a couple of conversations that I was involved with where it felt like you just couldn't get everyone involved because there just wasn't enough time for everyone to talk. I personally don't like the idea of moderation. I don't like the idea of somebody who sort of rules the conversation. Um, I think as soon as you're in that situation, You've kind of moved away from the art conference. Okay. So on the theme of formality or not, another suggestion was that we should move away from the pub setting of the first two unconferences and go for something more like a conference facility or a hotel or something like that. 
The plus side being that there would be more room and it, it would be easier to split off into separate groups, into separate rooms, rather than just a different table or a different corner. The downside being, again, that it is more formal, not necessarily like an unconference, and perhaps takes away the food or the drink that can help lubricate some of the conversation. Yeah, and also, presumably, it would probably be more expensive, I imagine, than, than hiring a, 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 a room in a pub. I think that the the drink and the food that helps lubricate the experience, as you put it, is really important. I think it's good that you can get there early and have something to eat and you can chat and then the conference starts. And then when it's finished, you can continue on your day and, and, and not feel like you have to disappear off. I thought it worked really well that we just headed upstairs and we continued our conversation. One of the things I really liked about the conference was those conversations I had afterwards with the people that I hadn't managed to chat to during the day. This Saturday, I'm attending a unconference called Game Camp, which is taking place at one of the parts of London's South Bank University. I get the impression that university facilities are not unknown for other unconferences, and I look forward to this and finding out how well the university campus facility, which would hopefully have more small separate rooms as well as large communal space, is suited to holding unconference. Yeah, one of the ideas that I had, similar to universities, is a sports club of whatever type. They usually have bars and often have kitchens, as well as a lot of space that isn't often utilised during the week when unconferences have taken place so far. So perhaps there's something to look into there as, as the best of both worlds. But just to go back to what Ken was saying, I think it's a really important point to emphasise for people who haven't been before and who may be coming in the future that even though an unconference has a specified duration, the fun doesn't stop there, so to speak. And in both Leeds and London, after the formal discussion has stopped, a number of people have stayed around afterwards for more informal chat. And if you're able then to have a drink or some food as well, it can make things seem even more sort of sociable and get into uh, into small talk and stuff rather than covering the specific topics that you you feel like you should talk in a certain professional manner during the day. So I would certainly recommend everyone in the future planning to make a full day of it and not just shooting off at six o'clock or whatever the close time may be. Yep, I would uh, hardly agree. I think it's one of the best parts. Okay, well, speaking of closing time, I think that's probably enough for today. I've uh, really enjoyed the conversation, so thank you very much to my guest today, Ken and Chris. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. And I'll look forward to speaking to you all again soon. Goodbye, everybody.